it's kind of a hard thing to ask for. But at the same time, they know it's a problem too. They know that if they don't start looking now, if they do plan to move on. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. My name is Sarah Larby. Thanks for tuning in this week. And this week's guest is Andrew Hines. He is a student's real estate investor burr expert. So he takes student rentals and he burrs them and increases the cash flow tremendously. So super excited to share this episode with you guys. Andrew has his own podcast as well and really involved in the community of investors. So I'm excited to get to interview him and, uh, and also he's just like a wealth of knowledge. So super excited for you guys to hear him as well. And uh, what's going on with me? Well, let's just see. The Burr Project is probably midway through in Burlington, and uh, I think we're going to move out that way, and we're going we're gonna to rent out our Oakville house, that's the plan, and once that's done, I, uh, I will be talking to my work about part-time hours and, uh, and reducing my time, because at the end of the day, I do this for time freedom, and, uh, and real estate investing is great, and Working is great if you enjoy what you do, but ultimately you've got to keep on your goals. And my original goal was to do this so that I have more time and I'm not locked into a specific location. So if I wanted to continue these podcasts in Costa Rica, well, hey, why not, right? <laughs> why not? So still looking for land deals with the real estate empresses. And we found a, one right now in St. Catharines that could be a potential good opportunity. So we just got to do a little bit more digging on that because of their bigger investments. We just have to really do our due diligence. And then we're off to uh, do a little road trip together to uh, go and view a prefab company that can actually make multi-family properties. So we're exploring the prefab route if we want to build the prefab way or if we want to do stick builds when it comes to what we're going to put on our land. So I'm excited about that. And uh, yeah, like lots, lots of stuff going on. Started the Burr class by the time that you guys listen to this. And it'll probably be the third class. And it basically starts, this one started from February and we've got 10 and 12 students and it goes through to May and I'll probably take the summers off. So the next Burr cohort to learn about the Burr strategy, both online and in the field will start in September. So I love to do this, but I also love my summers. So I definitely, you know, June, July, August, like to take some little extra time. And so sometimes that's why I batch my, my podcasts even. I do a bunch so that they can get released and I can have enough to last me those three months so that on Sunday mornings and Monday evenings, I can spend my time outside. Because <laughs> recording outside with the wind is probably not the best when it comes to sound. And even though my sound is not perfect right now, because I know there's a little bit of echo based on the room that I'm in outside would probably be worse. <laughs> so anyways, on that note, guys, thank you if you've uh, reached out. I love hearing about your success stories. Or if you have any questions, feel free to reach out and let me know how I can help. And also, if you do live in the Burlington area or surrounding area, if you want to come out to the club and you haven't been out yet, feel free to message me. And, uh, and also check out our online real estate club, The Right Club Online. 
that is going to be absolutely amazing. A community of real estate investors coast to coast from Victoria all the way to Newfoundland and everything in between. So I'm excited. We are launching by the time that you hear this. It will probably be another week or two really from launching our online club website. So anyways, on that note, let's, uh, let's listen to what Andrew has to share about students, rentals, and the student Burr strategy. Welcome, Andrew, to the show. Super excited to have you. How are you? Good, sir. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Good. I'm, uh, I'm actually really excited because now the tables are reversed a little bit. I was on your podcast not too long ago, and today we are interviewing you and getting to know more about you. So who is Andrew? Give us a little bit of background and how you got started in real estate investing. Okay. Well, I'll, uh, I'll go right back to the beginning. So I actually started in 2010 thinking about wanting to real estate invest. Like in university, I saw landlords with these houses and I'm like, man, these landlords are making crazy money. I was running some calculations on a house that some of my friends lived in in like third year. And I was figuring that, that these four buildings that were right outside the Western University gates would actually replace my family's income if, if I just could find a way to own those. And when I figured that out, I, I knew I was going to get into it one day. So I went to business school. You know, I wanted to be an entre- entrepreneur since a young age, um, just because I didn't, didn't really see myself working for other people. I had no idea what would happen, but somehow the stars aligned and my now wife, she was actually one of my students. I'll give you that example. So I taught at Western. She was one of my students and she happened to come out, see me playing at uh, a bar that I played at after she finished my class, of course. And uh, we ended up talking and, you know, we talked about real estate. She's like, oh, you should speak with my mom. She's like a really established investor, developer. She and I started, Jordan and I started dating and I ended up working for Carmen. And, uh, she kind of took me under her wing. I learned mortgages. I, you know, I ran that business and I started investing in 2011. I bought my first property, a single family home, bought another one end of that year. And uh, then I ran into this problem. Hey, running out of money. You know, where am I going to get the, uh, the down payment for another? I, I took a, a crack at, at doing some development, invested in the States a little bit, um, finding creative ways to finance things. And again, ran out of money, had some hard times. And then finally, I found this whole Burr model in uh, say roughly 20, 2013, 2015, I kind of figured that out before it was a, a terminology people used and started doing it with student rentals, high-end student rentals. And that kind of takes me from 2015 to now where I've been able to establish a pretty decent portfolio of, of, of you know, good value assets in London, Ontario. And uh, since I live in Burlington, I'm looking to move my operation up this way. I'm putting, a, I'm putting a lot of groundwork up here these days. Sorry, I know that was a little bit long-winded, but I wanted to give the full picture. No, that's amazing. So, so you scaled, you really started with one at a time, which is awesome. And you know, running out of money, and as you know, is actually a problem that a lot of investors that are looking to scale face at some point. And one of the things that I believe in is, is find the strategy that's going to help you scale if that's, if that's the goal. And so how are you burying the student rentals? And the reason I'm really curious is because when it comes to financing, it's not as easy to get mortgages for student rentals and then especially to refinance them. So how's that all working? You're absolutely right. Good question. Um, so the big thing I 
I knew coming from the mortgage business, same question was, how is anyone going to get these done? Because I was trying to do mortgages for people who are, who are buying student rentals. And it was like, cross your fingers and hope the lender doesn't find out. Like just cross your fingers. Hope, hopefully you can just submit it as a single family home. And if the appraiser doesn't say the wrong thing, you know, maybe you get it through what I learned. And I think this is a valid strategy for anyone to take with absolutely any other type of investing is watch your market very closely. Watch what your competition is doing very closely. And I actually called people who had bought comparable products to what I wanted to make. And I actually asked them, I'm like, how did you, you know, first off, who sold you this? Found out who their broker was, the the real estate broker. I found out who they used for financing. The real estate broker knew the the financier. And um, it just turns out that not all people who work in banks are equal. I've been told no by one person at uh, RBC. And then I had another person finance my student rental. Like the one person said, no, not happening. No chance. CIBC, same thing. I've had people tell me it's not going to work. And then I had another guy say, oh yeah, no problem. And he's done countless properties for me. And I learned about him by watching my competition. So I think that's the key thing is it's not so much which bank you go with or or which, you know, which strategy you're, you're, you're specifically going after. There are people doing that strategy right and people doing it horribly wrong. And it, this is actually really relevant to somebody who just messaged me this morning on a similar topic. So I would say that, you know, biggest thing was finding out what my competition was doing. And then I just, I, I pushed with that. It hasn't always worked out perfectly, but I mean, the guy I used, he did me a solid. I was able to keep a couple of them um, in one year, like perfect burrs, I like to call them, you know, where I was able to pull out pretty well all the, uh, the money I had in. And I had basically $1.2, $1.3 million in assets from that summer with no money into it. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So when it comes to burring student rentals, how is that different from doing that with uh, other types of properties? Well, okay. So yeah, good, good question as well. Student rentals are frowned upon, as you pointed out, like lenders don't like them. The logic, I guess, would be that they think that they're going to be treated badly. And I think that there's a lot of evidence to support that conclusion, but that's not the case with me, right? Not all student rentals are equal. There are landlords that just let their student rentals fall apart and banks just don't want to deal with it. So they understand that there's a good chance that property is going to be treated badly if we do have to power a sale that property and force the sale because the person doesn't pay their mortgage. It's going to be in worse quality, worse shape, just generally run down. So I get it. And I'm sure there's insurance risks as well. And they, they look at all that. But uh, when it comes to uh, other, other stuff, family properties, right? They're not worried about that. That's the very, the very typical thing. So I know a lot of people are shying away from student rentals, which to me just makes it an opportunity. When there are other people that don't want to do it, it means there's going to be more opportunities to find those products. But but at the end of the day, it comes down to the same thing. Look around the universities in your town. There are hundreds, thousands of houses that, that all got financed. So there's obviously a way to do it. And I would argue that you could probably get it done with any bank, but not necessarily with any person in those banks. Great answer and a great point as well. Definitely some people are, are able to help you further than others. And uh, that's why I'm a big believer in having those expert people on my team and, uh, and helping me maneuver through all of that stuff. I'm sure you as well. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're in London for your student rentals. And one of the things that I hear a lot is like, there's a certain amount of maximum rooms that you can have. And some people are doing it on all in one lease if they're above that. Can you talk to us about any kind of legal aspects that we got to keep in mind when it comes to tenants and, and leases and all that good stuff? Well, yeah, these are the perfect questions. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad we're on the same page here. So one thing is absolutely for your financing, 
all tenants on one lease. That's just going to be across the board a better a better solution for you. I'm sure it has some insurance implications as well. Uh, so absolutely make sure that uh, that you have all tenants on one lease. In in London, you need a rental license for your properties, which is super silly and frustrating and not overly helpful in my opinion. But it is something that the city has enforced, and you have to maintain that on a yearly basis. Those are the two main things. If you want to get into like the management specifics, we could talk about that. Some things you need to be aware of. I'd say be in tune with your student market wherever you want to invest. Here in, well, I don't live in London. I say here, I'm in Burlington right now. But in London, the rental market for May 1st, so May 1st is when the leasing cycle starts and they're 12-month leases, but the rental market is now. So, well, sorry, we're, this is probably airing in February, as you've, as you've told me, um, Sarah, but the, the rental uh, leasing portion, so I would want to ideally start showing my properties to students end of October of the previous year. So it's, it's pretty crazy to think like my students just moved in two months ago at, at October 31st, my students have been living with each other for two months. And now they have to decide, I'm asking them to decide to spend another year together after two months together. And it's kind of a hard thing to ask for. But at the same time, they know it's a problem too. They know that if they don't start looking now, if they do plan to move on, they're going to be, it's going to be slim pickings. They're going to miss out on the best, uh, the best rentals. So it's odd. You, you need to be aware of your market and what your rental cycle is because student rentals are a business. They're not really as passive as family rentals, but typically you're going to get more cash flow. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So essentially it's up to them to figure out. So if there's like eight bedrooms, as an example, they've got to figure out who the eight people are going to be and then come to you with one full lease. Yes, there are like situations where you could piece together a lease. Like you could have three people sign the one lease and then you could add two more people in later. I've had that happen. And you just initial there, like basically everyone just initials to add them in. And, uh, but don't do the individual leases. You're going to have, you're going to have a serious problem if you go to the bank with individual leases for bedrooms. And, uh, it may even affect your insurance because when you're leasing individual rooms, now that's considered a rooming house versus when you lease a house, um, it's it's considered well just a house uh but on that insurance topic make sure that you have proper insurance on a student rental for anyone thinking about it odds are 99 times out of 100 you're not actually covered if you didn't disclose it to your insurance company and if if you're operating a student rental obviously there are risks and uh, you want to make sure you have full disclosure student rental coverage because uh, it's it's just not worth it. I mean, if you have like a $500,000 mortgage and all of a sudden it's worth zero and they're not going to cover it, that uh, that could be the end for some people. Absolutely. It's important to get set up properly from the start. So as you're burring the student rentals, are you buying property just with many bedrooms that's not already a student rental and then you're fixing it up and then making it a student mm-hmm. rental or is it already a student rental and as students are moving out, then you're doing one room at a time. How are you managing and doing all that? So I look, I look at a couple of things. Uh, for one, I like to expand the space. Uh, rarely, like I've, I've been buying houses that are like, say, you know, a thousand square feet or 900 square feet. And, you know, that's not really enough room for a five bedroom student rental if I want to have a quality product. So uh, I've done several additions where I've built on an addition to the rear to add bedrooms. I'm looking at you know, can I add bathrooms? How can I make this student rental a high-end premium student rental? And um, I do have, uh, you know, I have I've a few rentals that have ensuite bathrooms in their bedrooms because I renovated them to have that. So, I mean, that's a huge plus to a student if they're coming in and, and you know, maybe they don't know the other members of their group that well and they'd be a little hesitant to live with that group otherwise. But now because they realize 
that they have their own private bathroom, they don't mind. And, you know, the only thing they're sharing is the kitchen and the laundry facility uh, in the common area if they choose to use it. So I think it, to me, it makes my, my uh, product more premium, which that's where I want to be. Uh, that's the type of investor I am. I want anything I own to be something I would happily live in. And as a student, that's what I would have wanted. I didn't get that. I, I had a, you know, a $350 a month room in a house where I woke up with like ants crawling on me. And, uh, <laughs> it wasn't, uh it, you know, having gone to that school and realized that there's money there, there's people that are willing to pay for a better product. That was what I wanted to create. I wanted to create that. What would the people who, who sent their kids to private school for high school put their kids in in university? And that is exactly what I try and create on every single one. So it's not one room at a time. No, it's everybody leaves end of April. And if I'm doing it on the cycle, like if I buy the house, I typically would ask for it vacant. And uh, usually I, I'm able to get that. It may have already been used as a student rental, but badly. And then I'm going in and I'm making it a good student rental. Same area, you know, where that, that rental might have struggled before I renovated it. And now it's commanding top dollar. Okay, awesome. So can we share with the audience some of the financials, like how much mm-hmm. the house purchase, you know, for a mm-hmm. student rental would be how many bedrooms that would be in the cost per bedroom, the cash flow, that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. So like, do you want to know kind of the whole process on one of them? Kind yeah, of how it worked like out? Your last, your yeah. last deal you bought as an example. The last one wasn't as clean. So I'm going to give you one uh, a little further <laughs> back because it's easier okay. numbers. So I had one that I bought for uh, about 210. And renovation was roughly 200,000. And that one, I had a refi for uh, at a $530,000 valuation. So what does that work out to be? I ended up, I uh, pulled my, uh, my Excel sheet up here. I'll just work these numbers back because it's been a while since I looked at them. So we have, so we're 410 all in. And my, uh, I think my mortgage actually, no, this is coming, coming to me here. It was uh, 80% of 400 or uh, $530,000. So yeah, $424,000. So what represented a slight pullout of, uh, of cash, which I actually was, was just enough to, to uh, cover what I had to put into the next one I did. So they together, they worked out net even, but we'll stay focused on this one. So it was a pullout of, of roughly uh, 10,000 or sorry. Uh, yeah, it looks right, right around 10, $14,000 and the cash flow on that one. So the rental rate is 695 a room on that one, which I think there's even room to increase that, but I'm not, I'm not going to bother with that until it turns over again. And uh, cash flow is right around $600 a month on that right now. So it worked out, you know, nicely to, to have an asset that, that I have $0 of, of my own into and uh, cash flowing 600 bucks a month. It's just one of you know, multiple properties in my, uh, my portfolio that, uh, that are contributing that way. Okay. So the, the $200,000 to Reno, that sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. What does that include? Well, I'm doing nicer finishes, right? So new, new flooring, you know, rejigging, and I built an addition on the back. So, so that, that obviously, you know, adds into your cost, right? When you're, when you're constructing more simple construction, concrete piers and, you know, skirting and a heated crawl space. So it's not like a full basement or anything. Uh, it's, it's kind of the quick and dirty, the, the renovation that you could do in three months time, three and a half months time, which is, is extremely difficult to do. It's like gymnastics when you're trying to close a property, you know, May one and then start renovating and have it ready for students to move in September one. Uh, which I've done multiple times, sometimes multiple properties at a time. And uh, that is a good way to get a lot of gray hairs, <laughs> not recommending that. But it was like, there's no option, right? I'm not going to carry this property for a year without cash flow. If I missed that September one move in date, um, you know, I'd have to piece it together. Granted, now we're looking at like Airbnb strategies. There probably are alternatives, uh, which is nice to have now if, uh, if you're into that game. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm just thinking like with the addition as an example, you've probably had to get your permits and stuff in place. Do you mm-hmm. do that before you take possession? How does that all work so that you're on time? Yeah, a little gold nugget. <laughs> I learned this from from the realtor that I, I'd worked with, a you know, friend of mine. We go back uh, a long time and he's a very accomplished investor himself. Um, I write it right into the offer that I have permission to, to uh, seek my approvals with the city of London. And uh, that's enough for city of London. I just show them the offer signed that says I have permission to apply and they'll let me apply for the permit. Um, so I will typically try to give myself, it depends on how fast your, your designer is. Um, I'll try to give myself two months. Um, more recently, they're a little backed up. So two months isn't even enough. So three months would probably be really ideal. But then again, like, you know, there are some designers that can turn stuff around in a couple of weeks. And then there are other designers that take four or five months. So, um, you know, you really just got to know your team and who you're working with, but I write it right into, uh, right into my offer. That way I can, the day I close, I don't typically do any work, but the day after I close, then we start. Yeah. Huge tip. Like if anyone's listening and, and, uh, wanting to do any kind of permit pulling, if you can do it beforehand, it, takes time. Like it can take, (laughs) we were just trying to do one for Hamilton. We had to go back twice. So you can imagine how much time that is. And especially if, um, so I'm not using private money, but if you're using private money at 10 or 12% or what, like, I mean that extra month or two definitely adds up. Well, I've used some expensive money. I've, I've borrowed everything to do these projects and you can't be carrying them. It's just not an option. So carrying is extremely expensive and you, you need to be productive. Every day needs to be productive. And I, I started with the mentality that I, I would calculate what one day costs. What does one day cost me? All carrying costs included. And uh, any day I saw people weren't working on site, I'm like, yelling on the phone, calling people, you know, just because I don't, I don't think it's all right. It's not people in in the construction industry get very laxy daisy about that kind of thing. Like it's not a big deal. Oh, we have another job we got to finish up on, but I've really tried to build relationships where people understand, look, it's a timeframe. We, we cannot be late. There is no option to be late here because we missed that deadline. You know, God knows I might, I might get sued by my students because they don't have a place to live. Right. I'm, or I'm, I'm having to rent them a, a place or put them up in a hotel because I can't give them, give them occupancy on the date we agreed on. So uh, yeah, you really got to be careful there. Absolutely. So tenant screening, how are you screening the students? Like, are you looking for any particular program that you like better, like different years of students, like older students, or how are you piecing them all together? I like them in first year. Like I want to get them, ideally we're meeting October of their first year in university and they've, they've had just enough time to meet a group and they've been told, Hey, look, you guys need to start looking. So that's what I want. Ideally, I want people who are pretty open that their parents are going to be paying. And I like to set their parents up directly on pre-authorized debit when, you know, once we get them into the rental, because it just makes everything easier. But again, I don't want people who are looking for a deal. I don't want people who who are going to say, "Oh, can you do it for six fifty instead of six ninety five? I want people who would actually bid to pay more. And I've I've had that happen. I actually had one of my properties that I listed it for rent at seven fifty, and I showed people through. I had nineteen groups that that were like, "We want it," <laughs> and I, I basically so because I got overwhelmed with showings, I uh, basically said, "Okay, well, what we're going to do is." basically make me an offer. And uh, they made me an offer. I had a few groups bid up uh, over the 750 and ended up at, at 860 a bedroom. Wow. And, uh, and they're, you know, kids that 
that their parents all uh, sent them to private schools and, you know, various different cities. And it doesn't mean much to the parents to pay an extra 200 bucks or hundred bucks a month over what they might get it elsewhere. If their, their son or daughter is closer to the school, is going to have a better experience in university. That's who I want. So that's, you know, in my tenant screening process, I'm listening more than anything to how they speak, you know, are they trying to, you know, nickel and dime me or are they like, wow, this is so nice. Like really just focused on, on the benefits. I don't focus. It's not so much like, it's not so much like you would do with a family rental where you're, Sarah, I know you're listening. Is it your forever home? No, we don't want you. No, students are going to turn over anyway. So I want them to stay as long as they are willing. And I, I just looked, you know, can I see these people giving me a hard time being a problem? But I generally find with the nicer asset, they are better. Like they're, because they see that I had passion when I created it. I wanted to create something great and they are proud of their home and they want to share it with their friends. So I look for people who are, are like just wowed and, and, and really charmed by it. And then I know they're going to take care of it because they, they love it. Like they, you know, I furnish it. It's got quartz countertops, stainless steel. They like it. They want to show all their friends how nice their place is compared to, compared to their friends' places. So that's my, that's my criteria really for picking. And, and I, don't, I don't find people even respond if they want a cheap place because my price is clearly higher. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with a luxury student rentals. Mm-hmm. I mean, a great spot to be in for sure. So mm-hmm. all those finishes, you're, you're really tailoring that to, to your client base. How do increases work? I mean, if somebody's a group, I'm guessing half of them are probably going to be replaced or leave within two to three years. And that could be wrong, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll let you answer that piece. Now, are you resetting the rooms per room? Or are you resetting it by group? And uh, how does that work? Well, because they're all on one lease, there's no room to do that. I've, uh, I've had, you know, everyone, everyone increases as a, as a standard lease amount. So if it's six ninety five a bedroom on a, on a five bedroom, that's uh, thirty four seventy five on the house. So on the lease, it says thirty four seventy five. So that's the important thing when we're doing one lease, we're not saying a per bedroom amount. So the increases would work just like you said, you know, it, it would, it would be on turnover. And otherwise, like if I've had one situation where I, where I increased the rent by, uh, I think it was like 50 bucks on a house because they wanted to stay. But that was actually done through my property manager since I've been doing doing it myself. Yeah, it's just been natural turnover. We'll reset the rents to current market, which is the nice thing. Like I know, Sarah, how you said, you know, you want the people who are going to move on. Yes. Students will naturally do that. And then the market keeps going up on those student rentals. So it, and there seems to be a short supply in London for student rentals. So landlords seem to have a bit of an edge right now, which, which I definitely like for sure. Okay. So, I mean, looking at London, but looking at other markets... Do you want to be walking distance to the school or short drive or bus route? Like if somebody is looking at student rentals, like what are, and I know it varies by city by city, but maybe you can give Mm -hmm. us an idea of of the ones that you know, what's close proximity and what makes sense to, for students? Yeah, that's a great question too. Uh, I would say, well, first off for anyone listening in any market, start finding your local property managers uh, see if you can take them up for coffee or do something for them to just pick their brain as to what's working, what's not. Um, but I, I learned that uh, there was a huge demand for housing along the Warrencliffe bus route in London. So that's on the west side of the university, just straight north, south road. And I'm actually not that close to the university on a couple of them, but I'm within two minutes of the bus stop. So two minute walk, you're on the bus stop. And that's the most traveled bus route right into the center of campus. So that seems to be a big criteria. They want to be able to get there fast. Western is far too big of a school for everyone to be within walking distance. So it's, there's a certain practicality that, uh, that comes with it. 
And I do have some that are walking distance, which are great. I have one downtown, which is walking distance to Richmond Row. I used to live downtown when I shortly after I graduated and it was one of the funnest times of my life. And I, when this opportunity came up to buy this house private sale, I snapped one up. Uh, downtown as well. So I'm just looking for, for either a, like, well, for one, I need to understand that location. I need, it needs to make sense to me why somebody would want to be there. And if it does, then I'll, I'll jump on that. But yeah, typically right on the bus route is number one for me. And if I can, although it's very expensive, you know, right in walking distance is, is fantastic. So I have one that's walking distance, pretty much as close to campus as you could possibly get on the, uh, the side, the Richmond side in London. So that's the side of the gates, traditionally higher value area. And uh, it, it cost me a bit more to get it, but I was in like a six person bidding war, but I'm glad I got it because it's gone up in value like crazy. Nice. Thanks for answering that. So what about market saturation? It sounds like London is pretty good based on what you're saying, but you know, I, I look at other markets and I wonder if it's just oversaturated with student rentals. How can somebody that wants to get into a certain market see what the saturation is or if it's, you know, there's too many out there on the market, not enough. Like what would you recommend that they look at or ask or do? That's a great question too. Like I look at cities like Waterloo and I've heard that they're saturated, you know, they, they, that they're having trouble, you know, stuff that used to sell for an extreme premium is now being heavily discounted. So they've kind of seen a, a little bit of a dip. It, that's a hard one for me to answer. Western always made sense to me because it's one of Canada's biggest universities. Uh, it has a huge draw. Uh, the draw makes sense to me. I was a student there. I, I can't really comment on other cities. Again, I'm going with what I know. And uh, saturation wise, I, I just don't think that there's saturation for a premium product when the the competition isn't creating it. I mean, if if I felt like I was one of many, then I realize, okay, well, it's you know now it's time for me to step up my game. So I think that the biggest strategy I would employ if I was worried about saturation would be to make sure that my property always stands out. If I have to spend a few thousand more giving it accents or furnishing, maybe even the bedrooms down the road, I might consider that if that, if that turns out to be something that the market wants. But, but listening to my market and making the adjustments to make sure that my product is constantly the best one. And then the other part of that is treating my students well. I don't like turnover. Uh, it happens on its own. I don't need to force that. I want them to stay because turnover costs quite a bit of money. And if I can get them to stay, then, uh, then I'm, I'm laughing. It makes my life a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing I was thinking just for saturation, because we do hear, like I've heard Waterloo as well. Like I've heard Brock as well. And I think like one of the things I would probably do if I was in this market is I would go on Kijiji and just see like how many, you know, bedrooms for students there still are, how long they've been listed for potentially how many views they have. I'd probably check with a couple property managers in the area. I, I would think that's probably how I would, I would take a look at it. And, and obviously, like you mentioned, just having a different product. So like if you're in the higher end student rentals and there's not a lot of that that you can find anywhere, then you're in a good, good spot there. Well, yeah, you have to think about it. If people look at you as a commodity and the market becomes saturated, you're, you're at the complete mercy of that market. I like to make sure that people are never looking at my product as a commodity. They're looking at it as unique. Like I'll put an, a brick accent wall with a TV on it so that the pictures, when I post them, and this is the other tip is, is take great photos, take a virtual tour, do what other landlords aren't willing to do because I've just seen it. Most landlords are cheap. If that's my experience, uh, especially in the student game in London, I'm not saying as a general all, all over the place, but in London, there's a lot of commodity type rentals uh, that aren't really get that well cared for, very basic finish. And, uh, you know, 
they're not, they're not in a great position to handle a market swing, right? If, if Western lowers their admission, um, you know, for some reason they, they provide more on-campus housing, like, uh, like student rent, uh, residents, you know, that could have an effect, but we've seen it constantly in this market. Like they, they keep building more student residences, but the emissions are outpacing it. So we need more and more housing for, for students in London. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. So how does management differ with student rentals versus a single family home or multifamily? Like what are you doing that's not the same as a typical landlord would do? I think it's just a little bit of a different approach in that you're always thinking of of your your specific tenant. Like I see urgency with students. Like there is there is a, a time window that if you miss, you're at an extreme disadvantage. Whereas with family rentals, it's like any time of year you can rent them. Very few students want to start in January. So if, if your timing doesn't work out, you could be piecing together a group of internationals that are coming in for one semester. They're only going to stay for four months. And now you're turning over that property twice, not to mention those internationals when they come in. They're not a cohesive group. They're a, mix, they're a mixed group. And some of them may have great habits. Some of them may be clean. Some of them may be rowdy and make a mess. So, you're, you know, the, I've, I've put people in for four months and kind of regretted it. And uh, I would say that... Uh, that, you know, I really have to be cognizant of my timing, you know, no matter what's going on in my life, I need to make sure that in October, I'm on top of this. And I'm making sure that my students are telling me whether they're staying, whether they're going. Uh, So there's that there's, I'm having the lawn cut. I don't, I don't make them do that on a family rental. I would, I'm covering utilities. So all utilities are in, on, in my name and I pay them. So it's an all inclusive opportunity for the students. They just take care of their internet. So again, these are very different from what I would do on a, on a family rental. And I know that a lot of landlords are not willing to do that. You know, they don't want to be bothered. You know, it's way easier if I don't have to pay the utilities, whatever. I put them on auto payment and at the end of the year, I go grab all my bills, but everything is just auto pay, auto pay out of my account. I've tried to systematize everything I can, Sarah. I know you have all kinds of mad systems that we've been talking about. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot I could learn from you but I've tried to systemize that process as much as I can so that uh, things just roll and, and doing the automatic withdrawal from the parents was something I implemented last year. So students or the parents, it has eliminated so many headaches from my life. Like at, I only, I think three or four of my tenants don't pay with automatic payment. The rest are also, I get like two e-transfers a month. I can handle that, but getting, getting, you know, 30. Yeah. That's not so good. No, exactly. The e-transfers are simple. Once you have a lot of them, <laughs> It gets complicated. Absolutely. Well, and you have to go through a checklist who paid me, who didn't. And you know, there were times where I, it was like 12 months, 12 days into the month before I realized somebody didn't pay me. I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> this isn't good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more you have, the better your systems have to be. So yeah. auto pay is uh, is a good option for sure. Awesome. So, I mean, I could, I could keep really talking about this over and over because it's, I just find it very fascinating and interesting. And I think it's a great strategy. And if you can find a way to refinance, and to, to be able to like you're burring it and to do that successfully, then that's an even greater strategy. Because to me, I look at every strategy as having some pros and cons. And, uh, and one of the cons with student rentals is just being able to scale. But if you figure that piece out, because you're working with the right person on your team and the right, the right lenders that are in your pocket, then, uh, then that's a great piece. Well, Sarah, just on the, on the financing note, once you, once you move over to the commercial lending side of things, like say you have six doors or more, or sorry, five doors or more, you can actually finance them commercially. And at that point, banks are wide open to them. Like they don't love them on the residential side. But if you go under commercial lending with your big banks here in Canada, you can get them done, but it has to be done in larger numbers. So 
what if somebody really wanted to scale, they could start a corporation, start buying properties, student rentals and renoing them or whatever you want to do, finance them with a B lender and then in the interim. And then once you have enough doors, go back, refinance them on a commercial portfolio style loan. And now the sky's the limit. And then you can just go and you can just keep adding more and more properties to that portfolio loan with the bank and uh, in the sky's the limit. There is no cap. That is the best tip that I've heard in a long, 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 long time. So thank you for sharing that, guys. This is huge. If you are looking in student rentals, Andrew, thank you for that. That uh, That's awesome. So the next part of the podcast is our lightning round. So Andrew, I'm going to ask you a series of five questions and every guest gets the same ones. Are you ready? And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself. And she's works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis, it was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com, or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com, and then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. And now back to the show. Sure. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? Uh, rich dad poor dad okay all right what about your favorite podcast good question it's weird to say mine i just love all the guests but uh, you know i i really do enjoy yours sarah we've had a lot of similar guests and it's it's tough being a podcast host to listen to all the other ones but uh, i definitely do enjoy yours so what's yours called it's the andrew hines real estate investing podcast and it is a good one so guys if you haven't uh, subscribed left a review for andrew's podcast it is great and you have a little bit of a different twist to it that like what's the concept like who are you interviewing mostly 
I love I love to interview active investors, uh, a lot of people who exercise the Burr model. But I'll, I'll step outside that, and it's it's just geared towards active real estate investors, getting people who are doing things. Which is why you were on the podcast. You're real people doing real stuff. I know that was your uh, your <laughs> event yesterday. I, I love that concept. That's that's what I'm after. Nice, awesome. Number three, what is your favorite pastime? What do you do for fun other than real estate? Uh, good question. <laughs> um, you know, I spend time with, uh, with my wife and, and, uh, my dog and, uh, we, uh, you know, we do like to travel a bit. I, uh, I play music, so I'm a, I'm a guitar player, singer and played in a band or various versions of that since like 2007. Very cool. Awesome. And your dog is really cute, by the way, when I was uh, doing your podcast live, your, your dog was like next to us the whole time. <laughs> He's right here, actually, right now. He's being a good little boy. Oh, good. <laughs> Number four, if you lost all of your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Wholesaling. Okay. Right. Number five. Simple except, answer. Yeah, it's a quick answer. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not done as much in Canada as the U.S., but it's a great opportunity. Number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? Probably education, you know, like 50,000 when you're, when you're not working with other people's money, 50,000 doesn't go that far and you know, that might get you one deal, but uh, you know, a combination of education, the small down payment and your first burr would probably be, uh, be the right combo there. Awesome. So Andrew, if the listeners wanted to reach out and know more, where can they go? Uh, Instagram or Facebook at the Andrew Hines. And then they can of course find my podcast on uh, any of the podcast platforms and in on YouTube. So they can just uh, search the name, the Andrew Hines real estate investing podcast. Perfect. That's great. Now, any final last words of advice? Like I said, I think, I think get educated, but just one specific on that comment from this morning, I had somebody message me. They got set up with the wrong mortgage, the wrong solution that just didn't work and it wasn't in their favor. And it was because they weren't working with professionals that were investors, were surrounded by investors and did it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If you're working with the wrong people, it will cost you money. So work with the right people. Uh, Sarah, you've got a fantastic, you know, meet up with the right club and fantastic people come there and you can talk to other people who are getting things done through the service providers that are there. So find service providers that have created success and work with them. Don't just go work with Joe or Mindy, you know, your family member or your neighbor. Work with people who, who create success. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Andrew, on that note, thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, thank you for all the knowledge and the insights that you shared today. Yeah, I hope people got some value out of it. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons. And at the time, they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away. And eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked, and also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. 
And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.